Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. So let's pray one more time. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word in the book of Proverbs. Lord, as we've started a series looking at your wisdom, um, we pray that you make us wise, not according to worldly standards, but according to your standards, the wisest we are meant to be, which are uh, people who see the world as God desires us to see the world, who see the world as you created us to see the world. And that is only done uh, when you open our eyes to see your beauty through Jesus Christ. So we pray today as we hear your word in Proverbs chapter 1, that that happens, that the scales of our eyes are lifted and that those who see, see more clearly um, so that we might worship and work differently because of the grace we've received in you. We pray for all of this in your name. Amen. Amen. If you don't have your Bibles open, you can open them up to Proverbs um, chapter, I realize I should probably turn there, huh? It'd be important for me to have my Bible turn to Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19 is where we'll be today. And as we begin this text, I want you to to think uh, how well, and this may be a dangerous question, but how well did your parents prepare you for life? See, whether you had good parents or bad parents or absentee parents or divorced parents, we all know either by positive or negative experiences, that the goal of a parent is not just to provide to us essentials to live, but also to teach us how to live. That's why most cultures throughout human history have had specific things for men and women that are a sort of rite of passage. That there was this one specific point where a parent could take heart and a child could know that they have confidence that this child has been equipped with the knowledge and the skills they need to survive and hopefully to thrive in life. In our modern world, this is becoming whittled down more and more, and a lot of these rites of passage um, have been taken away or handed off from the parents to other people and other specialists. You've got driver's ed teachers who prepare your kids to drive, teachers who prepare them to learn and bestow on them the qualifications to be functional members of society and degrees. You've got therapists and counselors who help them express and understand their own experiences. And none of those things are insidious on their own, but what we shouldn't do is lose the priority and the obligation a parent has to prepare their kids for life for one key reason. No one loves their own kids like parents. No one is more invested in the safety and success and the well-being of children than a good mother and father. And we started the book of Proverbs last week. We're looking at some Proverbs of King Solomon. And today, Solomon is going to place all of us in the seat of a child. Regardless of how old you are, we are going to be seated as a child before a father who is preparing us for our own rite of passage. What is this rite of passage? What is this challenge? It's the challenge of wisdom and the test of it. Of how will you prove when your wisdom is tested? 
And in this passage, there is a father who's preparing his son to leave home, and he's reminding him of the wisdom he has learned. And yet he knows that on the other side of that door is, as we'll see, this metaphorical gang of hoodlums. There's this fellowship of sinners, sinners who want to lead the child astray, fools who want to entice this man's son with false hopes and dangerous promises. And in the face of this, this father is going to plead with us, his children, because he loves us. And he wants us to experience joy instead of devastatingly dangerous disasters. And today we're going to be in verses 8 through 19 of chapter 1. And the big picture we're going to see today is this. What's the one thing we're going to see in this text? It is that the wise person hears the counsel of grace and runs from the call of the sinner. The wise person hears the grace that has been proclaimed to them, and because of that, they run from those who call out to them in sin. And our passage today is a monologue from a dad to a son, and there's kind of three parts that we're going to look at in here. In verses 8 through 10, we're going to see the appeal of the father. And then in verses 11 through 14, we're going to see in contrast the violent call of the sinner. And then as a way of summary, this good dad is going to present to us uh, our third point, which is the wisdom of a better way. And so with that said, let's look at our first point today, the loving appeal of the father. And let's read together verses 8 through 10. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. So here we see these two characters, right? There's the father and there's the son, and he's beginning to plead with his child, and we see three things that he's doing in this text. First, in verse uh, 8, he's reminding them of what they've learned. In verse 9, he's holding out the promise if they endure in what has been learned. And then in verse 10, we see really his plea spoken to the heart of his child. And pretty much what's happening is at this point, he's opening up this passage saying, your whole life has been building up to this. Don't forget what you've learned. It's like a movie where the coach is prepping his team for a big game or a commander's getting his troops ready for battle, and they say, you've been training for this moment. You're equipped for this. And opens up with this word, hear. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. And in Hebrew, the word to hear does not simply mean to listen, but to obey, to act upon what is heard. In the mind of the Hebrew writer, to hear is to do. And so he's, he's not just saying, listen to dad's unique anecdote about walking up to school uphill both ways in the snow for the 10,000th time. He's saying, obey the instruction, the counsel, perhaps what your translation says, the discipline of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. And that's something that's pretty uh, remarkable in the context of wisdom literature in this day. Last week we saw um, that uh, the Bible's wisdom literature was not the only type of wisdom literature in that day, but it was the only wisdom literature that came from the God who is all wise. 
And so other cultures has, had wisdom literature, and in those cultures, it was exclusive that it was the father's job to teach the son. But here we see that God's pulling mom into this as well. That mom is also responsible to train and to raise her kids in the wisdom of God. God gives unique roles to both husbands and fathers and wives and mothers. And together they are to train their children with this sort of wisdom. You see, no matter how godly a Christian husband is, it is still the job of a wife and a mother to help raise her children with the wisdom of God. And so both of these parents together issue both an encouragement and a warning. They're saying, if you remember what you've been taught, you're going to do great things. You're going to make it. You're going to be okay. As you, freshmen, start your first year in a weird new world, there's a promise for you. As you new parents begin a new stage, As you, regardless of your life, enter into a political or an economic culture that none of us have probably seen before, remember that here in the wisdom of this mom and dad is everything you need to make it in life. Here's a way where you can receive a reward. But Solomon is assuming, isn't he, that we know what's been taught. We're kind of parachuting into this text. Do we actually know, are these promises for us when we consider what is being taught? So what is it? What is it that a father and a mother would generally teach and instruct their children in? Well, there's lots of things they're probably taught. But there's one primary theme, which a good Israelite family, which this is assuming, this is a loving, good, caring father and mother, would constantly teach their children on a daily level. We went through um, a year and a half ago, I think, maybe, the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, we see Moses reminding God's people of God's grace to save them. He called them out of Egypt. That's what we were just reading beforehand, too. And because God was gracious to call them out of Egypt, because they see his love in his salvation of them, they should love and obey this God. They should trust that this God knows what is good for them. And time after time in Deuteronomy, Moses speaks to the parents. And he says, remind your children of this gracious and good God. This culminated in the book of Deuteronomy with what what is called, if you want to sound really spiritual, you can know this now, the Shema. Shema is just the Hebrew word for hear. It's the same verb that opens Proverbs 1 verse 8, hear my son. But it's called the Shema because this was a a specific uh, passage of scripture which opens with that call, hear, hear. And listen to this in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, verses 4 through 15, this is the Shema, and this is something that Israelite families would daily use to instruct their children. It says this, and I want you to listen to what is being taught. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates and when the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to you 
with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. So what is the main content that these parents are teaching to their children? It's that God alone is worthy of all of our love, all of our obedience, and all of our loyalty. Why? Because this God is the only God who can save. This God is a God who took a people with no political standing, oppressed and enslaved in a foreign culture, and because he loved them, called them out and freed them by his grace. This is the God who promises to satisfy people. What is the teaching and instruction in this home? Don't forget the God who graciously delivered you out of slavery and has called you to a land of blessing if only you would obey. Remember that in obeying this covenant-keeping God, there is a life of joy and joy abundantly. And so Solomon's wisdom that we're seeing in the book of Proverbs, we talked about this a little bit last week, but wisdom isn't simply wise decision-making and good career choices. The wisdom of God is preeminently the idea that God alone is our source of life and that God's people are bound to him in a joyful reliance, that we want what this God is offering because we see what this God has done for us. And for us today, we see this in its fullness. What God did in bringing the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt was a foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do by bringing us out of slavery to sin. And we see how this faithfulness and this redemption is spoken of in 1 Peter verses 3 through 4. We just finished going through 1 and 2 Peter, but listen to the language, this reward, this blessing that comes in this God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, the instruction and the teaching that makes a Christian wise is the reminder of what Jesus has done to save us in his mercy. That he has come to those who are dead and he has died so that they might have life. He has come to those who were poor and by his mercy he has given them a promise of an inheritance imperishable, unfading, and undefiled, kept in heaven for you. We see the immense joy in Jesus, not of being brought to the promised land by the grace of the law, but being be restored all the way back to God himself by the grace of the cross. This Jesus has done marvelous things, and we ought not to forget it. And this is where Solomon begins to point out the reward, the good promise, the good substance of living life under a God like this. In verse 9, he says this, For they... Are graceful garland for your head, 
and pendants for your neck. Now, you only understand this if you have grandmas, because it's grandmas who have graceful garland and pendants. The rest of us don't really understand the value, but grandmas always show that to us, right? These are good things. This graceful garland and these pendants, this is the adornment of beauty. These are objects of great value. And here, they, that is, these teachings of God's covenant grace to you and your desire to follow him will adorn those who keep them. They will beautify those who are broken. Trusting in God's salvation frames your head with a crown of glory and adorns your neck with beauty and precious stones. To continue to faithfully trust the salvation of this God is to be provided the visible adornment of beauty and provision that we all want. We want this, don't we? We want to have something of value in our lives. And here the promise is, these family heirlooms are for you. They're not going anywhere. No matter how hard life gets, if you do not forsake these teachings, these are yours forever. And it's from this promise, this promise of reward, that Solomon begins what I think is the heart of his plea in verse 10 where he says this. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If sinners entice you, my dear son, do not consent. You see, what does Solomon assume here? He assumes that the call of mom and dad are not going to be the only calls you hear in your life. They'll be the call of the sinner. And his desire will be to entice you, to seduce you, to persuade you, to sway you. We have a very social five-year-old daughter who I'm sure all of you have already met at this point in life. And she loves meeting new people. Uh, She stood out uh, in our lawn during like lockdown just waiting for people to walk by. Um, Which that was a little suspect but not entirely as scary as what happened this summer when uh, it just so happened unrelated to the fact that dad was home alone with the kids. And I went to go look for Adley. I couldn't find her. I went downstairs. I went in the room. I looked under the beds, checked the backyard. And I get to the point, you dads have been there, where it's like, okay, maybe this is a bigger deal than I think it is. And I go outside, and I'm walking around, and I'm getting ready to call uh, police. (laughs) And I see her at our neighbor's house, uh, who's having a construction project, and she is socializing with these construction workers. And what we also found out is this was not the first time that Adley had slipped through the backyard to this construction site. They had given her a set of Adley rules. And Adley knew when certain equipment were to turn on that she was to cover her ears or look away um, because that's how familiar and comfortable, dangerously so, she had become with this situation. And by God's grace, she wasn't in any immediate danger And we took her back, but both Sarah and I knew that this was dangerous. That my daughter cannot live life thinking that what she's doing is okay for her safety. We knew that even though her heart wants to go out and to explore and to meet new people, there are people in this world whose desire is not to care for her. Whose desire might be to harm her and to hurt her. And so we began to plead with her. 
as she has not a care in the world, I remember taking her and saying, Aptly, you cannot live this way. You cannot just wander off and talk to strangers. And it's not because we didn't want her to meet new people. It was because we loved her. It was because we wanted her to be safe. It was because we knew the danger that her in her youth could not understand. And notice what Solomon says in verse 10. When sinners entice you, do not consent. He uses two words that are important for us there. The word entice and the word consent. And those two words are important because they're heart words. The words that get at our heart. He's not just saying, when you see this, don't do that. He's saying when these people are speaking to your heart, when they are speaking your language, when they are enticing you and persuading you, don't want anything to do with it. When he says, do not consent, he's not simply saying, don't do it. He's saying, please, my son, I beg of you, do not want to do it. Do not want that which is dangerous. Know how vile and bloodthirsty these men are. You see, these sinners seek to entice us They speak to our hearts, offering the same joy as the Father. And so if we are not wise, we will see their enticement as something additional, something safe, something good. But we need help to understand this, don't we? We took Adley. My wife took her when she got home, and I uh, casually explained that I lost a child. And so she came and she gave Adley this test. After pleading with her the same things I did, she said, Adley, if a man pulls up in a van and he says, hey girl, come into the back of the van, I have puppies, what would you say? She says, I love puppies. (laughs) And then she saw Sarah's face and then she's like, no, no. (laughs) Now we laugh at this. But it reveals our very need for this proverb, doesn't it? Because why would Adley go into something that any normal adult sees as something foolish and dangerous? Because she loves puppies. And why would we consent when sinners entice us? It's because we love puppies. You see, both loving parents and enticing sinners offer the promise of satisfaction to the child. They offer things that seem to produce joy, that seem to occupy our hearts and cause us to thrive. But one call is rooted in love and the other call is rooted in evil desire. Solomon wants you to know, wants me to know as children that there are people in this world, there are gangs of sinners outside these doors whose call might seem to be for you, but whose desire is for your life. And he is pleading that we would not consent. He wants you to see the reality behind their call so that when you encounter it, you will know what to do. And this is exactly what he does in our next section. This is the violent call of the sinner. And here again, we see the beauty of wisdom. I am begin, I'm, 
uh, if you ask our staff, I was really intimidated to start preaching through Proverbs. Um, it's, it's kind of an intimidating book and to how it progresses. Um, but I'm falling in love with this book because of the beauty of it. We should want what Proverbs is giving to us. Be the benefit of wisdom literature like this is, again, we talked about this last week, it wants us to have wisdom beforehand. It wants us to equip us as preventative medicine so when things happen, we know what to do and how to act. And I love what Solomon does here because he's going to, um, the father is going to speak as if he is the sinner trying to entice his son. But what he's going to do is he is going to actually share the heart of that sinner. In other words, he is going to share what is behind the call of the sinner in its truest reality. And this is what he says in verses 11 through 14. If they, that's the sinner, says, come with us. Let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason or how it could be put just for fun. Like Sheol, that's the Hebrew word for the grave, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us and we will all have one purse. So I've never watched it before, so don't take this as a uh, recommendation for it. But I remember last football season, which is the only time I ever watched anything that has commercials, there's a show called Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. And the description of this show reads like this. After an unusual event, whip-smart computer coder Zoe Clark magically begins to hear people's innermost wants and desires through popular songs. Suddenly, strangers, friends, coworkers, and family are unknowingly singing their feelings just to her. At first, Zoe questions her own sanity But after some guidance from Mo, her musically attuned neighbor, and making a breakthrough with her ailing father, Zoe soon realizes this unwanted curse may just be an amazing and wonderful gift, as she now connects with the world like never before. So why is this premise attractive for us? It made it onto national TV. And what does this teach us about our own realities It's because we see this woman who for the first time doesn't hear what people are saying, but hears what people are meaning. Here's the innermost desire of their hearts. If you had this, what would you do with it? What would be different about the way you live? What if you could hear the true thoughts behind the seller of that suspect apartment or product on Craigslist? What would you do if the mechanic who said, well, everything's scrapped, you need a whole new engine, spoke what he really found in your car? What would you do with such information? What would you do with, as the writer of that description says, such an amazing gift as that? Solomon here is giving us that gift. Solomon is showing us exactly what is meant when your coworker or your spouse or your study buddy calls you to sin. He gives a window into the true desire of those who come and promise joy. They have puppies. But what is behind their call is violence. What's behind their call 
is deceit, not satisfaction in obeying God, but the promise they give, the false promise of thriving apart from God. What you might hear is your friend calling you to blow off steam after work with a few drinks. What you might hear is a coworker saying, it's just a kiss. On the, or the portrayal on TV that this is a common way for everyone to unwind in a chaotic world. But what they're actually communicating, what Dad Solomon wants you as the child to hear, is that they have violent intent and false hopes wanting to consume you and destroy others because they refuse to see the satisfaction that comes from God. Who, in listening to this appeal, If I came to you and I said, hey, what are you doing this afternoon? You could go home and watch football or we could lie in wait for blood and ambush the innocent. Who would do it? None of us would, would we? Who says, hey, here's the deal. We're going to go steal from a bunch of people and then I am honestly and genuinely going to give you your fair amount of the spoil. No one would. And yet we do, don't we? When we refuse to see sin from this perspective, we are the fool who refuses to hear what Solomon desires to show us. But wisdom here is saying that this language, it says in verse 19, this language is the language of all who are greedy for gain apart from God. You see, behind the call of the world is the predatorial heart of sin. Sin is always violent. Sin always reverts to stealing the plunder and the precious goods of others. Why? Because sin at its start is stolen worship. Sin takes worship that is meant to be given to the God who created the cosmos and steals it from him and tries to give it to other things. Sin looks to people and sin looks to things to provide what only God can provide. Which means this. That because sin refuses to be satisfied in the only God who can satisfy, sin looks to other people as means for that satisfaction, which means sin sees each and every person around you not as someone created in the image of God with equal value, dignity, and worth, but as tools that we might be able to extort to use, to experience, and to leverage for our own satisfaction or our own salvation. And in the name of comfort, sin turns us into cannibals, consuming those around us, expecting them to be a God, but rejecting the very God who created us in order for us to be satisfied in him. Sin is violent, stolen worship. Look at what he points out in verses 12 through 14. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us and we will all have one purse. Why will we sin against each other and against God? So we could take what is theirs and have it for ourselves. So come, join in the spoil. Come and have the security of this purse. You see, just like the good parent Remember how we looked at Proverbs? It's contrasting. Just like the good parent promises adornment, so too does the gang of sinner promise precious goods. 
The parents offer the simple and satisfying adornment of grace with garland and pendants, but these sinners want you to think that mom and dad are just being cheap. That there's far more to have in this world, more than a crown and a necklace. You could have a storehouse full of things. We'll find what's ours, and we'll take what's not, and we'll be better for it. If you're familiar with the story of the Bible, this is the first dilemma, isn't it? This is the challenge that Adam and Eve had when the serpent tempted them in the garden. The problem wasn't that Adam and Eve wanted to be satisfied. God made us to be satisfied. The problem was that Satan convinced them that God would never satisfy them and that he was holding back. That a relationship with God couldn't possibly cause you to thrive in this world. And from that moment... We became dissatisfied eternally because we rebelled and rejected the very God who created us to be satisfied in him. And if it's this restorative relationship to God where we're finally and fully made whole through faith and repentance, then we can finally see the calls of the world to plunder and precious goods are really calls for our own bloodshed. They promise to be for us, but in reality, they are against us. In warning the early church in the third century, Clement of Alexandria equipped his church to resist the call of this sinners by talking about a sort of death. A death, he said, not that severs the soul from the body, but that which severs the soul from truth. I wanna read that again. A death that severs not the soul from the body, but that which severs the soul from truth. You see, to listen to the call of these sinners because we expect it to be anything other than this violent bloodshed is to sever our soul from the truth that sin is always and forever against us. You might find it safe because you don't die in the instant, but at that point you have severed yourself from life eternally. There must be a new way forward. The Father wants us to know this. He says this in verses 15 through 19. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But, when the, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. So how do we avoid this? Dad makes it clear. Don't take the off-ramp. Don't even flirt with it. Don't set your foot on their path. Don't start on their way because it is like a treadmill that takes you places you don't want to go. Run from it. Flee it. Do not be near it. They run to evil. They make haste to shed blood. If you can truly see the false promise of sin that Solomon is showing you, that dad wants you to understand who is foolish enough to try it. And it's here where, by the opposite, wisdom wants us to see our last point. Wisdom for a better way. The father is going to continue to shed light on the lives of these sinners so that you might long for something better. You might long for greater satisfaction. Look at what he says in verses 17 and 18. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. 
So Solomon really pulls all the punches here. Those who seek to call you into sin are those who generally seek to project that they've figured out what you can't. The reason why your life is miserable is because you're not doing this. The reason why your life is miserable is because you're choosing to do this. They are life's philosophers who have unlocked the meaning of life, and if you do not see the same meaning in life that they do, you're a fool. But Solomon shows the absolute and biblical proportion of their stupidity. He says this, if you lay out a net unconcealed in the middle of a path, even the dumbest of all birds will have the natural inclination to not go into it. But here, he says, these men boasting in their ability to find life waltz into a neon trap in the middle of the path. Hunting season has started up. Perhaps some of you are missing spouses today because of it. They're putting on camouflage. They're walking downwind of all of their prey. They're painting their faces. They're spraying themselves with urine, all in the hope that they can sneak up on an elk. And they do so because they know that any elk worth his antlers doesn't need to see the hunter or hear the hunter, but only to smell the hunter before they realize they need to run. Solomon here has fanned the scent into our nose. He has stripped away the camo. He has turned on the air horn of sin. But how many of us still refuse to run? But because God loves us, he gives us the wisdom we need to run. To not step on the path. To withhold our foot. And look at this parallel that the Father gives to us. Verse 11, the call of the sinner. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Look at what the reality is in verse 18. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. You see, an ambush is going to happen. But it is the sinner who constantly refuses to see God's salvation in Jesus Christ who will be ambushed in their false security. It is they who will be surprised when they find out that what they have chosen cannot keep their life, but actually demands it. You see, you will run into people who offer you the thriving life if you would just keep what the world gives but the Bible shows that you might get to keep all the money, you might keep all the accolades, you might keep all of the affirmation, all of the sexual partners, and all of the success, but those things cannot keep you. It takes the life of those who possess it. But look at what is offered in Ecclesiastes 7, verses 11 through 13. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of, of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Worldly wisdom promises preservation and precious 
goods. But it's only godly wisdom which can actually preserve your life. So what helps make sense of straight things made crooked and crooked things made straight? The work of God. You see, here's the beauty of a God like our God. Not only do we have promises like Deuteronomy 6, which promise divine provision for our lives through his salvation, not only do we read about the fullness of that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. Not only do we see in 1 Peter the wonderful, infinite promise of an inheritance which is for us, but do you see that Jesus loves you so much that he has tripped this trap for you. You see, on the cross, Jesus took the punishment of sin's trap so that you might no longer be deceived by its location. That you can see the wages of sin clearly and by grace live differently. Is he to not see the cross as God's wisdom revealed is to be as short-sighted as these men rushing headlong into an open trap. But to see Jesus and to see the cross where he died and was rejected as the wages of your sin also shows to you the promise of his mercy that he has done that for you so that you might be spared by faith and repentance. How dangerous is sin? Dangerous enough to demand the life of the one who was adorned with all of heaven's glory, sinless in every way, but came to die because of your rejection and your rebellion. You see the privilege of seeing the lie of life exposed on the cross so that you might choose the life that comes after it. If you've never seen the grace of Jesus in tripping the trap of sin for you and seeing the way in which all the false promise of this world demands your death, today's a good day, I pray, that you get to see that and realize that everything you needed in this world is freely given to you in Jesus Christ. He reconciles you to God who satisfies you spiritually today and is one day bringing you into a kingdom so great and so good that you will have no want. It is in Jesus you're delivered from your own blood guilt of sin. It's in him that you possess the only thing which can give you life. If that's you, I encourage you to talk to someone before you leave today. If you've never repented and come to Jesus, if you are one who has fallen time and time again for the sucker line of the sinner, Jesus can change your heart. He can cause you to no longer consent to sin, but to desire him. And for those of you who have seen the wisdom of the cross laying bare the schemes of men, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Look carefully and constantly upon God's love for you on the cross and choose to trust yourself to the grace of the Father and not the gang of the sinners. Trust that there is beauty laid up for you in obedience to this covenant-keeping God, a Father who loves you and wants you to live life satisfied in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your good words. 
as a father myself, this passage is overwhelming because I understand the desire I have for my children and I cannot fathom that you have a desire like that for me. Yet so many times I see the calls of the world as something that brings us joy but in understanding your heart for me. And the reason why you call us to Christ and call us to holiness is not because you are against us, but because you are infinitely for us. So Lord, I pray today, in way of application, that we run. That we run away from those who call us to our own graves. And we run towards the Christ who went to the grave for us. I pray that we are adorned with the riches of grace as a crown on our head and a pendant upon our neck so that we might show everyone around us the wisdom that comes in being satisfied and reliant upon a God like you. We pray this so that we might be wise and help others be wise as well. In your name, amen.